0: The internet lets you hear radio and watch TV and movies from all over the world. Unless, that is, the content provider has gone out of its way to restrict access to certain parts of the world learn how to enjoy the internet the way it was meant to be universal and global with the audiobook imagine there's no countries you'll learn how to access content from any apple store in the world follow that sports broadcast you're keen on watch netflix and audio describes content no matter where you are and much more and all this info starting at just 1995 Learn more about Imagine There's No Countries by visiting the Mosin Consulting Store at www.mosen.org. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin. It is episode 32 of the podcast in its present form and do you realize what that means? Of course you do, don't you? It means that in 10 episodes we will be in a position to give you the ultimate answer. The answer to the question of life the universe and everything if you're not a douglas adams fan i would have just completely lost you anyway welcome to the podcast a very special podcast today because of the information contained and it changes your life even half as much as it has changed mine after having worked with it for the last year and a bit then i will have done some good today so stand by for that as we speak with low carb author blogger and podcaster Jimmy Moore and poster child, I have to say, given all the weight that he's lost on the low carbohydrate lifestyle. We'll talk a lot more about that in a moment. We are releasing this podcast on Mushroom FM's seventh birthday. We went to air on the 25th of April 2010. So thank you to everybody who's tuned into Mushroom FM over the years. For making the station such a success, we of course took a a wee break of about 20 months in the middle there. But apart from that, for the last seven years, we've been evolving as the internet evolves and providing you with a high-quality entertainment experience. And of course, these days, Mushroom FM is in the business of bringing you four decades of magic mushroom memories, music from the 50s through to the 80s. There is a lot that's new in the schedule, so if you haven't checked the schedule for a while do head over to mushroomfm.com slash schedule and do that. I think you'll be amazed with all of the stuff that has arrived in recent times. One of the things that we do on Mushroom FM that's a little different, but is in my tradition of trying to bring the blind community together to discuss issues of importance to us, is we do a live call-in show on a Thursday night Eastern time in the United States called A Kappa at the Mosins. And we're going to be talking this week about a subject that I think will generate quite a bit of interest and debate. How much should accessibility depend on our ability to persuade powerful companies to implement it voluntarily? And how much should regulations and legislation require accessibility to be the norm? Should, for example, Apple be required, or should they be requiring their developers to make apps accessible in the App Store or at least provide an accessibility rating? Is that something Apple should be required to do? We'll look at all of these issues and look at precedent so far and look at some of the accessibility gains that we've made over the years and try and analyze how many of those gains have been due to legislative requirements and how many have been because we've been out there raising awareness. You can find out more about that live call-in show at mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. You can call in from all around the world. There are phone numbers everywhere. You can also use the Firefox or Chrome web browsers to make a very high-quality voiceover IP call to the show. And it goes out to air on Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Bonnie Mosen and I hosting that two-hour call-in show a kappa at the Mosins, it relies on your participation, and I very much look forward to your feedback on what I think is a really important and fascinating topic.
1: On a Saturday night, do you go to the bar for a quiet drink, but you can hardly hear yourself think with the latest chart music blasting all over the place? Would you prefer to go back to the days of the good old jukebox where you could pick and choose the songs that you wanted to hear? If this is the case, I've got the show that's just for you And you don't even have to leave your house Why not join me, Anne Cosgrove Every Saturday at 4pm Eastern 9pm in the UK For only the 80s Two hours of great 80s music Packed with features such as the 12-inch mixes The Blockbusters quiz And we'll take a look at the UK And the US Billboard charts as well So if 80s is definitely Your decade for music and films Day Oh. Nobody you won't want to miss only the eddies every saturday right here on mushroom fm it's time to hear from this
0: week's featured guest on the blind side depending on the subject's matter this podcast tries to inform you make you think or entertain you but this particular episode is special because it may start you on a journey that will improve your quality of life, prolong your life, it could even save your life. What if I could prove to you that the majority of what you hear from your doctor and your government about what you should be eating is flat out wrong and dangerous and the consequence of a colossal misinterpretation of scientific data? I'm now over 30 kilograms or 60 pounds lighter than when I was at my heaviest. I enjoy the kind of boundless energy I can't remember having since I was in my teens. The change in me is so noticeable that I regularly get asked what I did to look so good. When I have an annual medical checkup now, all my stats have gone from showing a high risk of heart disease to a 5% risk, 95% of which is because of the history of heart disease in my family and not because of the state of my own body. I've had to completely replace my wardrobe once, and it won't be long before I have to do that a second time, and I even had to resize my wedding ring down by four and a half sizes. I did all this without going on a diet. I simply switched to a lifestyle of high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carbohydrate living, also known as a ketogenic lifestyle. The more I've recovered from poisoning myself with sugars, the more I've experimented with what I like to call new old-fashioned techniques like meditation, fasting, and bulletproof coffee. And throughout this remarkable journey of transformation, I've had a supportive companion with me every step of the way, even though we've never communicated with one another before today. His name is Jimmy Moore, and he runs the longest-running health podcast on the internet, The Livin' La Vida Low-Carb Show having published over 1,200 episodes. He's also an author, public speaker, and a communicator who has the ability to cut through the industry-funded misinformation and help people get their health back. Jimmy, it's great to have you on The Blind Side. Thank you so much and welcome.
2: Hey, Jonathan, I need to hire you to do all my intros for me, man. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's begin at the beginning and talk about your own remarkable story, because at one time you were morbidly obese, right? I mean, you were over 400 pounds.
2: Yeah, 410 pounds back in 2003 when I got a diet book for Christmas. <laughs> how, how many uh, uh, people get a diet book? for Christmas, but not just from anybody, Jonathan, it was from my mother-in-law. So, yeah, so pretty subtle, right? Given, pretty subtle. Oh there. my goodness. Well, what's funny is she'd given me diet books every single Christmas as if, yes, uh, I know I'm fat. Thanks mom. Um, <laughs> but she'd given me all these diet books, but this particular year in 2003, it was Dr. Atkins new diet revolution and that book totally revolutionized everything I thought I knew about health and nutrition, and uh, and I but I I thought the guy was a whack, uh, Dr. Atkins, and I said, come on, eat less carbs. How are you supposed to have any energy if you don't eat a significant amount of carbs in your diet? Uh, what do you mean eat more fat doesn't he's a cardiologist doesn't he know that that's the exact thing that's going to clog your arteries and give you heart disease these are all the images that we believe and a lot of people still believe in our culture today but at that time i was so desperate. I was on three prescription medications, 32 years old, three prescription medications, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, respiratory issues. I was a ticking time bomb at that point, Jonathan. And had I not changed, I earnestly believe today I would be dead.
0: What I didn't Um, know about you was that you actually did lose a lot of weight first doing the traditional low fat diet, right? But you put it all back on again.
2: Yeah. So 1999 was when that happened. I went on basically a zero fat diet. And so, uh, that was, uh, right after my brother, Kevin had a series of heart attacks. So, um, three in one week he had that, that eventually did kill him in 2008. He eventually succumbed to it at the age of 41. And so, yeah, so that's what kind of woke me up that I really needed to do something when I was 28, And so I went on this, this ultra low fat diet because that's the default. When people think they need to get healthy, when they think they need to lose weight, they automatically default to, well, I need to cut my calories. I need to cut my fat. I need to probably try to go vegetarian. I need to exercise till I drop. These are all the mantras that we've been told in our culture are healthy actions. And so I did those things and was very successful at weight loss but my wife Christine will tell you, Jonathan, I was not a fun man to be around, and I'm pretty happy-go-lucky as a as a guy, uh, pretty much all the time. But not that year. That year, I was irritable. I was always angry, and I now know it's because my brain was screaming at me to please feed it fat. People don't realize this, but you're all fatheads. I, I didn't insult you when I said that. You are a fat head. Seventy percent of your brain is. So if you don't feed your body fat, guess what? Your brain starts rebelling until you finally get with the program and start adding fat back to your diet. So, but yeah, I was very successful at losing weight uh, on a low fat diet, but it wasn't sustainable. And it was after nine months, I'd lost triple digit weight at that point that I rebelled. And it was at that point that I said to myself, look, if I have to eat that way, low fat, in order to be healthy, I'd rather be fat and eat whatever I want and be happy. And, and this is what happens very... to
0: people, isn't it? People feel, and they say this to me a lot, they say, well, I'd rather be happy than super healthy and boring and not being able to enjoy the things that I enjoy in life. But I tell right. you what, it sounds like you had the kind of transformational experience that I've seen in my own life where once you start to see people that you love, you know, your, your relatives, people close to yep. you, on the operating table – because of the way that they've been eating, it changes your perspective and you start to think, look, nothing is worth this. Nothing is worth it.
2: It it certainly wakes you up. And and thankfully, my mother-in-law gave me that book that totally radically changed everything I believed, because if it was yet another low-fat diet, I think I would have thrown it in the garbage can and not even bothered with it, Jonathan, quite frankly. But it wasn't. It, uh, the Atkins diet was totally different. And when I say Atkins diet, I mean, I actually read the book from cover to cover and, and did it by the book. You know, people say, oh, just eat meat, eggs and cheese. Well, that there's a little more to it than that. Yeah. That's a good basics of it. But, that but you have vegetables and you have certain things that you do. So anyway, I started it January 1st, 2004 and immediately lost 30 pounds in one month, uh, which is pretty significant. Uh, But again, started at 410 pounds, uh, losing 30 pounds, I had a whole lot more to go. So by the second month, I was already so energetic at this point that I had to let it out somehow. So I went to the gym and started – I tell people I was weightlifting because I was walking on the treadmill at three miles an hour for about 15 minutes So I was weightlifting because my body was still very heavy at the time. Yeah, (laughs) my my legs are very muscular today. Thank you very much. So uh, (laughs) because of all that weightlifting. And so, uh, yeah, so I started I lost another 40 pounds after starting exercise in month two. I lost 100 pounds in 100 days. And I did have a bit of a stall in the weight, which is very normal. People freak out when the scale stops moving, but it's very normal to see the scale kind of uh, adjust as your body's adjusting, quite frankly. And interestingly, when I lost no weight on the scale for about 10 weeks in a row, I didn't lose a single pound. I ended up losing six more inches off of my waist during that no weight loss. So I think the scale's a lying liar that lies. So please put a sledgehammer to it and stop letting that be your litmus test for how you're doing always, always, always check how you feel, you know, check your inches. Those things don't lie. So, uh, by the end of the year, I'd lost 180 pounds and it got a lot of attention from a lot of people.
0: I'm sure it did. What were you eating to get to that state in the first place
2: though? Dude, I was I was the product of a single mom feeding us however the heck she could. So, <laughs> so when I grew up, it was Hamburger Helper, it was cans of corn, cans of green beans, and those canned biscuits, those Grands biscuits, remember those? And yeah. so we would eat those pra- practically every night. Mama would be on a low-fat diet because it was the 1980s when they were really pushing that hard, and so Mama was having rice cakes and fat-free ice cream and Diet Coke and all this other nonsense that we know is not really that healthy for you. And juxtaposed to that, we had, you know, cocoa puffs and Doritos and Coca-Cola and, and snack cakes and all this junk food and of course, fast food. Um, and so when I got out of, uh, the house and everybody's like, well, you got out of the house, you became an adult. You should have known how to eat. I'm like, really? How, how do you, how does that happen? You know, you, you grow up, learning a certain way to eat. And when you become an adult, guess what? You keep eating the same way you learned how to eat. You don't suddenly say, Ooh, I'm going to go have broccoli and kale today with my, with my chicken breast. No, you just don't do that. And so I continued the very poor eating habits all through college, all through my twenties You know, I I remember my dad and uh, my brother, Kevin, who's deceased, and then my other brother, Nathan, we'd all go out to a pizza joint and we'd see who could eat the most pizza. And so uh, my brother, Kevin, always won. He always got like a pizza, a large pizza and a half. I would get about a large in and have to stop. But yeah, it's those kinds of things that I learned growing up that you don't just undo those overnight.
0: Your podcast, I guess, is symptomatic of what I call a democratization of health data because when I was a kid, we had this family doctor and he was a good family doctor and he, he delivered me and he uh, delivered my first child and, and that's how it was. And it was kind of like he was the oracle. And if he made a pronouncement, then that was the fact, you know, and he would consult his dusty books and look things up where necessary and and that was that. And now we have the internet and I guess with that comes opportunity as well as threat. Fake news tends to be the big buzzword these days, and one of the fake news things that has been around for ages, actually spread by some of the vegan proponents deliberately, is that Robert Atkins, who founded the Atkins Diet, died of heart disease and was actually riddled with heart disease, which is absolute demonstrable Nonsense. It, look, it's crap. It's absolute. It's just not true. And yet you get yeah. this touted all the time as a way to try and discredit the Atkins diet. It takes a bit of bravery, doesn't it? And perhaps it takes desperation to fly in the face of what has become conventional medicine, even though it is flawed, to try the Atkins diet in the first place, yeah. when people say he killed himself with his own diet, which he didn't.
2: Well, and and I did this, um, I started this just like a year after that happened. I didn't even know who Dr. Atkins was when my mother-in-law gave me that book. And I later learned about the huge legacy that he had built since the early 70s, uh, pretty much talking about this for several decades before his uh, untimely slip and fall in the ice in New York City. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that that kind of misinformation gets out there, but it does take a lot of guts to try something that goes against the grain, all pun intended, against the grain. Uh, but now I see that ketogenic is actually coming on really, really strong. I'm hoping I've had a little bit to do with that with my book, Keto Clarity, that has now sell, sold well over 100,000 copies worldwide, Um, And all these new books that are coming out uh, all about ketosis, I think people are hungry for a change and about time.
0: I want to have a go at trying to explain why this works. And obviously there are books by the dozens that, that try and do this as well. But I work with people in the field of technology, particularly assistive technology. And it may not be the best or the most accurate analogy, but something that I've found when people ask me about this that resonates with them is you've got an iPhone and you plug your iPhone into the wall to give it some charge. That's essentially the the first source that it will use because it's getting charge right from the AC adapter. That's essentially what will happen to your body when you're eating carbs. It's an easy form of energy. It's pure energy. And so that's the resource that your body will use first. If you unplug that iPhone, there's a store that is the battery in there. And then uh, because there is no direct energy coming from the AC, then the uh, battery will be used as your source of energy because the phone has to keep going somehow. If you don't fill your body with carbs... Essentially what has to happen at that point is your body's got to keep going and it will go through a conversion process and use the stuff that is stored in your body uh, and convert it. Convert the fat that's just sitting there forming rings around your belly or whatever and use that as energy instead because your body has to survive. Is that a sort of fair if not slightly primitive analogy?
2: It's. I would say it's a very uh, a very advanced analogy because <laughs> I've never quite put it that way. But that that's interesting. I, li- I like all that uh, usage of things that people would recognize. Everybody's plugged in their phone, and yeah, I like that. Um, and I would even go one step further and just say, look. When you're a sugar burner, which is most of the world's population, probably 95 plus percent of the population, you only have about 2000 calories worth of energy at your disposal on your body right now, which is why dietitians and all these people say, oh, you have to eat every few hours in order to you know, make sure that your body's properly fueled. Well, guess what? When you shift over to being a fat burner, so what we're talking about here being ketogenic, you're shifting over from being sugar burner to fat burner in, the, in that like two to four week period of time, cutting your carbs, moderating your protein, eating more fat. Once you do that, that 2,000 calories worth of energy, which is mostly in the form of glycogen stores in sugar, guess how many calories worth of energy you have on your body of a lean person once you make the shift to keto adapted. Do you know? I don't know. You should know if you've read my book, Keto Clarity. (laughs) So it's 60,000 plus calories worth of energy. And you might be like, whoa, where does that energy come from? Well, everybody thinks of energy as glycogen and sugar and glucose in the body, but the alternative fuel source is fat. And so, and then the byproduct of that fat is the ketones. And so When you're a lean person, you have upwards of 60,000 calories on your body right now, which is why a lot of people who eat ketogenically very naturally fall into periods of fasting. And it's no big deal when you miss a meal and you, you almost forget to eat because you're so satiated, because you have all this energy. And think about it. You know, everybody like lows because they have body fat on their body. But think about what the body is doing Storing that fat on your body. It's actually storing up energy. You know, it stores sugar to a certain degree, that 2,000 calories, and then it stops and then it converts that sugar over to fat, which then gets deposited into the body. It doesn't do anything with protein as far as storage, it has to convert it into sugar which then once it's overfilled converts to fat and then fat actually does not get converted into anything. It actually is a usable source of energy in the absence of carbohydrates. So that extra fat on your body is what the body taps into once the sugar is gone from the body. And so This is why you have body fat. It's not to look grotesque. It's not to make uh, fun of you on shows like The Biggest Loser. It's actually there to be tapped into as a fuel source. And the reason it's not being tapped into by so many people is they're still sugar burners and they're constantly feeding their bodies the sugar that never runs out.
0: Even though people are feeling horrible, you know, there are people walking through life feeling pretty zombie like because of what they're putting into their body. And I don't know where I read this or whether I heard this on your podcast or something. I'm sure I didn't invent this myself. Somebody once said that food can broadly be put into two categories food is either medicine or it's poison. And once I internalize that and I Check my plate out, or I get offered things at a at a party where they're handing around lots of pastry filled savories and stuff. And I ask the question: Am I being offered medicine or am I being offered poison? I, I'm pretty good at staying on track just based on that simple question. <laughs> for me, that 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 seems to work. But how did we get it so wrong? You know, that there's a wonderful book, and you interviewed Nina Tichols on your podcast, who is a New York Times journalist. Who found out by accident going to restaurants in New York that actually when the restaurants were using healthy fats and you know the, the, the giving quality meals, uh, they tasted better and they made her feel full longer. So she started to unravel this whole dreadful miscarriage of scientific justice that has made people so sick and killed them over the years. And she put all that in a book called The Big Fat Surprise. But you would think in 2017 that this wouldn't even be a matter for debate. How can scientists be so violently at odds with one another about what we should be eating?
2: You know, I think at this point, it's so much a part of our culture, this whole low fat, low calorie exercise till you drop mantra. It's become so much a part of of American culture, even uh, worldwide culture, but westernized society. Um, You know, we just, we've always believed it since the 1950s. And sad to say, it was one man and one man's work who influenced a lot of this and a lot of people that have read Nina's great book, highly recommend it. Uh, Gary Taubes also wrote a a seminal book on this called Good Calories, Bad Calories back in 2007. And they outlined that Ansel Keys, he was a Minnesota researcher, he actually did this study called the Seven Country Study where it showed there was a correlation between the amount of cholesterol and and saturated fat that you – ate in your diet correlated perfectly with the level of heart disease. So the more saturated fat that you consumed, the higher your cholesterol, thus you got heart disease and, and you died. And so it looked all beautiful when they published it in the scientific journal. The problem is he had 28 data points and those 28 data points, uh, the, the 21 extra ones were all over the board. And so That got out there and it just became a a consistently repeated, oft-repeated but still wrong uh, notion that if you ate saturated fat, it was going to increase your risk of heart disease. And we're still in 2017 dealing with this despite the fact that we saw that Harvard researchers were paid off in the late 1960s to hype up the problem with saturated fat and to downplay the role of sugar. People like John Yudkin came out and was, you know, sounding the alarm about sugar being the true culprit in heart disease and and your health, and he was completely blacklisted. So there was a lot of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. And oh yeah, by the way, one of those Harvard researchers Uh, Who has paid off fifty thousand dollars in today's money is all they paid these Harvard researchers to be quiet about the effects of sugar on your health and to play up the saturated fat. One of those guys actually got on the USDA dietary guidelines uh, committee uh, that actually created the very first uh, food pyramid that we had. So that's how we got low-fat diet into our culture, and we're still plagued by it. And I use that word very deliberately. In 2017,
0: I have a friend who was really transformed by the work that I believe it was Dean Ornish and, and his crew did on the yep. China study. And I wonder what your take on the China study is, which well, that's advocates That's right. Yes. And and it advocates for uh, essentially a vegan diet. Just take animal products out of your life. Completely, And they say there's a whole bunch of data they collected that that shows that when you adhere to this lifestyle, you are going to lead a very long, healthy life. So that's the complete antithesis, really, of the low-carb lifestyle. And yet it seemed to work.
2: Yeah, and and unfortunately, the China study, the book, and the China study, the the research, are two totally different things. The book is propaganda for the vegan uh, community, unfortunately. Um, The study itself is more of an epidemiological type of study, so it didn't really look directly at patients in a lab uh, under a period of time, you know, having, you know, different cohorts. Um, It it wasn't a randomized controlled clinical trial, so there really wasn't any good solid evidence for this, Uh, and in fact, even the low-fat diet was never vetted in that way, it was just thrown out there to the culture and repeated often enough and people believed it. And I think that's what's happened somewhat with T Colin Campbell and Dean Ornish and Neil Barnard and all these guys in the vegan community. They're, they're just basically repeating each other's uh, words often enough. And now people, Oh, everybody knows vegans healthy. Well, it can be healthy with the right amount of fat, but unfortunately most of those guys are also low fat people. I actually had Dr. John McDougall, a very famous uh, starch-based diet guy, vegan diet guy, on my podcast once. It's it's hilarious if you ever ever want to go. Have oh, a bit of he fun. was
0: he was the one that was, uh, shall we say, very abrasive, wasn't he? abrasive
2: is being very kind to what he did to me on that he's the only one
0: i've ever heard call you mr moore on your podcast
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's worth a listen yeah yeah it it was fun and it was one of my most all-time listened to Uh, it was good entertainment but you didn't really get a whole lot out of it uh other than he hates uh people that eat meat and uh, fat people i guess so (laughs)
0: right right (laughs) who have lost all this weight um yeah, but you know, you'll be familiar with Mark Hyman, I guess, who most recently oh, of has, course. Yeah, he's written a book called Eat Fat Get Thin and he yep. had a bit of a road to Damascus experience because he was your typical doctor who was telling his patients that that the, the low carb lifestyle is quackery you'll make yourself right. ill, you'll have heart attacks, don't do this. And then he found he just could not treat his patients with the con- so-called conventional uh, li- diet that he was recommending. He looked into it further. He's totally converted. He did a thing a while ago, one of my listeners to my radio show recommended to me, thank goodness, called the Fat Summit, and he got a whole lot of experts on that. Yep. And uh, he actually got Dean Ornish on there, and one of the things that really interested me was that even Dean Ornish, while he's still advocating a vegan lifestyle, has changed his mind about fats. And he's saying, yeah, stay stay vegan, that's his thing, I guess. But he's also uh, recommending the use of avocados and nuts and uh, uh, non-animal-based fat products in a way that he didn't before. And apparently one of his assistants said to him, you can't put this stuff on, a, on the Ornish diet. And Dean Ornish says, well, who do you think you're talking to? So even, yeah. Yeah, even, even this has, uh, has changed in, in the vegan community to some extent that we're realizing now that fat is actually not the demon. Sugar is the demon, isn't it? I mean, when I look at all these different options, paleo, the, the Atkins style diet, it all seems to come down to taking sugar out of your diet.
2: Well, and, and by the way, Dean Ornish has to do that. <laughs> if he wants to remain relevant, you have to tar- start talking about the healthy fats, and he'll still deny butter is a healthy fat, but to say avocados and olive oil and all that, he has to do that. In fact, I, I've interviewed Dean Ornish uh, a couple of times on my podcast, the second time a little more contentious because he asked me to be and he never came back after that. (laughs) I guess it was too contentious. But yeah, I mean, I I think at this point, um, the influence is out there. People are savvy, you know, with all the access to information these days, listening to podcasts like yours and mine, you know, the information is out there. And so they can't ignore this any longer. Um, And they're still going to try to fit it within their own paradigm, just so they don't totally lose face. But I, I think at this point the, the ship is so far down the road and they haven't seen the results that they want with the old way of doing things. And so now all of these, uh, all these patients are rising up and saying, well, we're going to eat more fat. So they kind of have to do that at the end of the day.
0: One of the most wonderful moments of my low-carb journey was when I got the call. Uh, after having submitted myself to a battery of tests for some life insurance although they should call it death insurance I think anyway but I (laughs) I was applying for and um, they called me back and they said yeah we compared with your results last year this is just absolutely remarkable every single indicator that you have is just so much better than when we looked last year what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing the, you know, uh, low fat, high fat uh, diet, you know, um, essentially Atkins. And they sort of went, Oh, but, you know, they couldn't argue with the numbers. They The numbers don't
2: do lie. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and my I doctor, just, when I, right after my experience in 2004, losing 180 pounds, I went to see him and he immediately noticed the weight loss and he was really impressed. And how'd you do it? And I went, um, <laughs> and I didn't really want to tell him because I knew I was bracing, uh, you know, for what he would say. And he's like, well, we need to check your cholesterol. It wasn't like good job on your weight loss. You know, I'm sure you're much healthier. It was let's check your cholesterol. Cause he bought into the whole Ansel Keys thing. Yeah. Of eating all that fat, going to raise your cholesterol and give you heart disease. Of course, everything checked out beautifully, and I had even had one of those things called a heart scan. If If your listeners have never gotten a heart scan before, it's called a CT heart scan for about a hundred dollars here in South Carolina when I where I run it, and you can actually see the amount of uh, calcified plaque in your in your chest. And I came back with a big fat zero. I've since had another one done just about three or four years ago. And again, big fat zero, despite eating about 70 to 80% fat in my diet.
0: Could we talk about ketosis a bit? Because I understand ketosis, meaning that essentially you're putting your body into a process where you're burning fat for fuel because there are insufficient yes. carbs. Now, we have a a good community of uh, people with diabetes in the blind community For some, it's the cause of their blindness, and for others, it's just something that has happened to them because it's something happening to a lot of people. In the diabetic community, there seems to be a form of ketosis that that diabetics have understood to be dangerous, and I'm not clear about this. You, you, You can probably shed some light on this.
2: Oh, I have a great analogy for for this one. If you are a type 1 diabetic out there in the audience right now, you're the only one that needs to listen up right now. If you're type 1 diabetic, there is a word that you are abundantly aware of because your diabetologist told you don't ever uh, neglect this, and it's called ketoacidosis. So ketoacidosis is extraordinarily high levels of blood sugar, Uh, upwards of 240 milligrams per deciliter plus, along with simultaneously having extraordinarily high levels of blood ketone levels, 20 millimolar plus. So when both of those are happening at the same time, what it means is you ate a high-carb meal and you forgot to take your insulin, and so your body starts raising the blood sugar. Obviously, if you're a type 1, you make no insulin. It's going to go way up your blood sugar And at some point, the body's going to say, whoa, I'm starving. I need energy. So it starts producing ketones in reaction to that. Well, high blood sugar and high ketones at the same time puts the body in a very acidic state. The patient will fall into a coma and will possibly die if they don't get insulin and electrolytes and some other things as soon as possible. So that's a type 1 diabetic everybody else listening right now, if you're type two, if you're insulin resistant, if you're Joe Schmo just listening and and enjoying and have pretty good health, it is nearly impossible for you to get ketoacidosis. So what is this nutritional ketosis that we talk about? Nutritional ketosis is where you're eating low carb, moderate protein, high fat, and producing lower levels of blood sugar and very, very moderate levels of ketones. The highest ketone reading I've ever gotten, Jonathan, is a 6.7. It was when I first started truly getting serious about testing for nutritional ketosis. And that happens. When you first start, you'll see some higher levels as the body gets adjusted to using these ketones for fuel. Over time, you'll see them fall down probably somewhere between 1 and 2, pretty naturally Uh, even a little bit lower than that, and you're still in fat-burning mode. So you've got 1 to 2 versus 20 for the blood ketones. Your blood sugar stays in like the 70s and 80s versus 240 plus. Much, much different to be in nutritional ketosis compared with ketoacidosis.
0: In terms of knowing when you're in ketosis, I believe, and this could be some sort of placebo on my pad, I believe there's a kind of a taste in your mouth that you become used there to. Is. Yeah, okay. So yep. that, that's how I've been able to tell. But I wonder whether there is any technology that you might be aware of that would help a blind person know for sure when they're in ketosis because a lot of these things that there are sticks that change color and that's no good for us. Is yep. there anything that you can blow into that goes beep when you when you when you're in ketosis, do you
2: know? You know that is a great question. I know all the technologies that are out there. I will tell you, if you pee on the stick, you're not going to hear anything off that stick. Right, that's um, right. And so that's out. Uh, and then there is a blood monitor called uh, Precision Extra, but it doesn't talk. Uh, that would be really good. I, that They need to start catering more to the blind community, um, although it would be a small segment. I would even like it, even as someone who can see. Um, and 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 here, I think it would be awesome to have it be able to kind of say, "Your reading is one point two, you know, and that would help you guys. Unfortunately, there is no technology like that right now, and then the last one would be the breath meter, and again, that meter. I know the guy that created this breath meter called Ketonics, and maybe that's something that he could add as an add on uh email me after we get off the interview, and I will forward it to him as a suggestion to maybe make available. Um, it would obviously cost more money because you got to have a speaker and and all that put into the device. But that's a great idea. But as of right now, to my knowledge, there's no audio uh, meter that would give you the reading since you can't see.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't found anything. One other option is that a lot of blind people are using smartphones these days, and I love all yes. this data. So I have an Apple Watch and I have uh, smart scales and, and various yep. other technologies, and they all integrate with the health app. On my iPhone. And I take that to my doctor sometimes and I show my health app and I say, check this out, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) have a look at all this great data in my health app. And so maybe if there was some sort of uh, low cost interface that could uh, check in with the health app, you know, via Bluetooth or something and communicate that data, that would be another way of a blind person being able to access the information.
2: Well, the technology is certainly there right now to make yeah. that happen. I think it's the gumption of these companies, and again, keep in mind, uh, testing for ketosis is still a very niche thing. So, I think once it becomes much more mainstream, then they're going to get into maybe making more customized devices, and I think adding uh, the the voicing of the of the reading it seems like a no brainer down the road. Have you
0: found that other changes in your life have resulted? From feeling so much better And I ask this because One of the things that happened to me When I really started going low carb And feeling so much better I actually always allowed myself um, A little bit of wine I loved my wine Especially red wine but I actually gave it up. i didn't I didn't crave it anymore, and I found it an encumbrance, and I replaced it with meditation. and I do fifteen minutes of meditation in the morning and another fifteen minutes in the evening. and it gives me a kind of a serenity and a, a level of relaxation and a high that um, I could never get without alcohol, at least without you know consequences later. And I wonder if you if you find that there's a kind of a spiral that begins when you go ketogenic.
2: Yeah, and I love that you replaced a, a consumption thing with someone, something non consumption because I think that's key. You know, when I used to drink 16 cans of Coca Cola a day, yes, you heard me right. Oh, my 16 goodness. Cans of Coca Cola, <laughs> uh, whole boxes of Little Debbie snack cakes at a time and fast food. You know, I was a junk food junkie back in the day. So, one of the things that I did when I switched over to Atkins was I came up with a mantra. And the mantra was, sugar is rat poison. Mm. And literally anything that was sugary, sweet, carby in any way, I immediately – looked at it as rat poison. Now of course on a conscious level I went, okay, I know it's not actually rat poison, but when it gives you that just enough of a pause, Jonathan, it helps you make better choices in the moment. And so that was one of the things that I employed and and it still helps. And of course today I've been doing this for so long, I just don't even mess with the stuff. I would much rather have those fresh chicken eggs in my backyard, out of from my from my chickens. I'd rather have the fresh, you know, vegetables from my garden. I'd rather have a nice grass fed beef steak or hamburger. Uh, those things are much more appealing to me now than even that crappy garbage, as I call it, that I used to eat in the past. Um, I used to think I could never live without. I'm now living very comfortably and happily without.
0: But how does somebody get there? I mean, this is the most common thing that people say to me when I bring this up. And, and I do a, a radio show on a Sunday. It's it's live. And we play quite a bit of music. But conversation yep. comes up too. And the low-carb thing keeps coming up because people are, are fascinated by it. I think possibly because they can detect in the work that I'm doing a kind of a, ch- a positive change in personality as well. Yes. Even if they can't see uh, the, the physical changes. And the most common question I get is, you know, I just can't imagine giving up my insert favorite thing here. And it, it could be my bread or um, my 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 soft drink or um, I'm just trying to think of all the other ones. You know, just yeah. my, my fries, my burgers, you know, I just – what will I eat? I can't imagine giving all this stuff up. It's not worth it.
2: And how do you get started with that? I think you turn it around. I think you say, you know, okay, great. You don't want to focus on what you can't have. Let's talk about what you can have. And dude, unlike any diet you've ever been on in your life, you get to have butter. How many diets let you have butter? Very freely. It's actually a, a very great part of your diet, coconut oil and full fat meats, full fat cheeses, heavy cream, no more of that, that, uh, white water that we call skim milk, uh, you know, all of these things that you can have. And then here's the kicker for me, look at all the disease that you're going to avoid. Now, people don't want to think about that they're going to get a disease, but guess what? If you're living and you're living on a standard American diet, at some point you're going to be plagued with a chronic disease. You want to avoid that? That's what this way of eating that, oh yeah, by the way, tastes good and is very luxurious is going to give to you.
0: Some people say, look, you know, I did Atkins for a while and I just got really sick of the fat. I got sick of the bacon and I got sick of the steak and I just wanted to tuck into something sweet. How do you deal with that?
2: Well, I mean, the good news is uh, there are some amazing sweeteners out there um, that are artificial, but I wouldn't mess with those. But there's amazing ones that are natural, and those are the ones that you can gravitate to. I wrote a book with Maria Emmerich, a a very well-known ketogenic recipe maker called The Ketogenic Cookbook, and in that book we included some recipes – where you can add a little bit of, of sweetener to it. You know, here's the thing. Once you give up the sugar and you shift over from sugar burner to fat burner, your taste buds, they majorly change. Now, keep in mind, I used to flood these, these taste buds with tons of high fructose corn syrup and all this stuff. And so it took a little bit of time for that to switch for me. But at this point, I, I recognize the natural sweetness that's in foods like almonds, I had no idea almonds were sweet until you no longer eat sugar <laughs> and and it just shows up in your mouth. You're like, whoa, that's really good. And of course, blueberries and strawberries are almost too sweet for me now, whereas back in the day, I didn't think they were sweet at all. So I think it's one of those things that comes with time. Um, and, and I think sometimes we, we think, OK, well, I can never have. We'll stop doing that. Stop putting yourself in a box that you will never have. You have complete control to put whatever you want in your mouth, but you're making the choice to make a better choice today for a healthier tomorrow.
0: You have written a book on fasting, co-written a book, and I hope we can have some time to talk about fasting. But you mentioned kombucha in that book. And uh, you mentioned that even when you're fasting, you sometimes take some kombucha. And it seems to me that this is a good way, perhaps, for some people who are highly soda-dependent to transition. It's not going to have that sickly sweetness of soda. But kombucha is actually a very nice, refreshing beverage, isn't it?
2: It really is. And it's one of those things because some people in my community— where we cut down on sugar, say, well, it still has sugar. I'm like, well, think about what you're getting in it. You know, I think about all those Cokes I used to drink with abandon uh, and and didn't care what I was putting in my mouth. At least now you're getting, yes, a little bit of sugar, but what is eating that sugar? A lot of healthy gut bacteria. So yeah, that really helped me during the fasting periods uh, so much so that even now when I fast, I don't find I need as many of them, but it was a nice little crutch for me when I first started along with the bone broth.
0: Yeah, my son and I actually make kombucha together and we find it a really beneficial experience, particularly since it's so jolly expensive at the organic store. So we yeah, we, make, we make it ourselves and it's quite fun experimenting with all the different flavors and the teas that you can yes. put into kombucha. You know, um, somebody I know quite well uh, has a history of anxiety and anxiety is a very real thing. I mean, when somebody has genuine anxiety, it's not just a case of, feeling a little bit upset about something. This real anxiety is debilitating. And I had a theory, and I said to this person, I, I, I see what you eat, and there's a lot of processed foods, you know, these crackers and uh, and chips and different things like that. Uh, give me 30 days of your time, and let me suggest to you what you should eat, and follow my directions and see what happens. So finally I got cooperation, and the anxiety completely disappeared. It was like I was dealing with a completely different person.
2: (laughs) And, And that doesn't surprise me at all, because a lot of the things that we talked about earlier with we're all fat heads, that's part of it. And when you start feeding your body properly and giving it what it wants, the body responds and Like I said, when I did that no-fat diet back in 1999 and I was irritable all the time, it was because my body was rebelling. Well, these days I, I do a lot of podcasts in a fasted state. I do a lot of podcasts in a ketogenic state, and I stay so calm. My brain, it feels like it's firing on all cylinders. It truly is an amazing place to be in.
0: Fasting's bad for you, they say. I find it interesting, actually, this whole anti-fasting thing, because (laughs) if there's one thing that all of the world's great traditions have in common, uh, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, the one thing that they have in common is fasting. Uh, People have fasted throughout the millennia, and it doesn't seem to have done too many people much harm, and yet people think if you don't eat every two or three hours, really bad things are going to happen. It's incredibly cleansing and beneficial to go on a good old fast. And I wonder if you could talk us through, I guess, broadly speaking, the two types of fasting. One is what I would call the intermittent fasting, where you may just delay when you eat every day or, or, or have some period that you deliberately choose. Another one is going on, I suppose, what one could call an extended fast, where one doesn't eat for some days.
2: Yeah, and I think part of this this negativity about fasting is people think of it through the lens of standard American diet. And so if you're eating a standard American diet, you are constantly hungry. And so the thought of even intermittently fasting uh, for a few hours at a time just seems painful. But I, I think one of the keys to a ketogenic diet, uh, which is what we were talking about, um, that will enable you to very naturally go many hours without eating. And so an intermittent fast is basically period of time without eating. Uh, and most people tend to do it you know at 12 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, even upwards of 24 hours. Uh, that's a good intermittent fast. So think about it. you, you eat your meal at dinner time at six o'clock. You wake up the next morning, you're not really that hungry, so you keep going and you eat at noon. Well, guess what? You just fasted for 18 hours when you did it that way. Yeah,
0: but breakfast is the most important meal of the day, Jimmy. Everybody knows that.
2: (laughs) And I agree. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I just don't agree it has to be at 8 o'clock in the morning because think about the word. The word is break fast. And so my breakfast can be at noon the next day. Uh, and I can have whatever food I want in my break fast because I'm just breaking the fast and, and whoever came up with that word, they knew, okay, the reason we call it breakfast is that's the time that you break your fast. It just doesn't have to be in the morning. We, we eat so much culturally by the clock. You know, we have breakfast seven or eight o'clock in the morning. We have lunch at 12 or one o'clock in the afternoon. We have dinner at six or seven o'clock at night. That's our culture telling us that we have to eat all of those meals. And, oh, yes, yeah, snacks all in between that. And then a midnight snack, what was it? Taco Bell used to say the, the fourth meal was the midnight snack at their restaurants. So, <laughs> okay. so we're constantly eating. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, man. Look at all these people that think they have to constantly be eating. Is it any wonder why we have an obesity and diabetes epidemic?
0: So there's a lot that we've covered, and, and it's been necessary to kind of scratch the surface here so that hopefully we've piqued people's interest. And I know we don't have too much longer remaining, so I thought it would be good to just talk a little bit about your own offerings, starting with uh, the Live and La Vida low-carb show, which... Uh, for, I I know we have a lot in our audience who are very fussy about their audio, and you know <laughs> if I if I somehow screw up with the audio, I I hear about it. So one thing I would say <laughs> from the get go is not only do I personally find the information of interest, but you do seem to take a, a lot greater care than many uh, with your audio quality. And and some of the other podcasts in this field, I've had to give up on because their audio is so dodgy.
2: Yeah and it's just because I've been doing it for so long and I heard all those complaints uh early enough in my podcasting career that I've corrected <laughs> In fact, I started a new podcast uh, on on fasting earlier this year, and uh, when we first started, my co-hosts didn't have great audio yet. And so people were like yelling at me. I'm like, guys, have I spoiled you so much with good audio? (laughs) Give me a little time to work with them. I'll get them up to speed. And so, yeah, so I I do take great care. In in fact, I canceled an interview I had set yesterday because the audio just was below my standard. I have a very high standard – for my audio, I made him go by the microphone I'm using right now, talking to you, and so yeah, it's yeah, I, I, I need do to that do by that by more
0: often. But you can do it because you've got a squillion listeners, so you know.
2: <laughs> well, and and here's the thing too: I also have a waiting list of over 500 people waiting to be on my show.
0: Right. That, that that's that's really cool. So it's it's a great resource and. I, I I can't say I listen to every episode because I think it's the kind of podcast that you dip in and out of. Uh, sometimes right. there's something that really speaks to you, and you have to just stop what you're doing and listen right away. And I, I think the thing I really appreciate about it is that if you're just starting on this journey, it's a wonderful resource to just go through the back catalog and find what's there and listen to yes. what interests you.
2: Yeah, and I do that by design because I, I don't pretend like – that every single episode, and there are some people that listen to every single episode, and I, I'm very appreciative of those listeners. But by design, I skip all over the place. Yes, the show is called "Live and Levita Low- Carb Show," but I talk about a whole lot more than just low-carb. You know I throw in a lot of uh, different types of topics, quite frankly, that are of interest to me, and if you happen to get the benefit as the listener, that's just bonus.
0: Right. And you've also been involved in a number of book projects, some you've written on your own, others you've collaborated with people on. Where would people start? If there was one book that people might like to start with, which one would you recommend of those that you've written?
2: Oh, that's like asking which of your children is your favorite. (laughs) Um, I would have to say it's Keto Clarity because that's the project when I got approached by a major publisher in 2012. What do you want to write about? I said ketogenic diets, and they did not believe me that it was going to be big. And I said, you're wrong, but uh, okay, how about cholesterol? And so I wrote cholesterol clarity first, but then I was like, can I please write my baby? Because I had that in my, in my catalog of, of brain book ideas for a long time, because nobody had really been writing books on a patient level that really like explained what all of this stuff means and so that's what Keto Clarity did, um, you know, and, I, and apparently it's done very well because it's resonating with a lot of people, over 100,000 copies out there and counting all over the world. And so I, I've been very, very blessed by that book, and I think it will bless other people that are trying to truly learn what this is all about. And then from there, you you start continuing your knowledge. So if you have a basic knowledge, and, and your uh, your listeners will love this, I actually read the audio book of this. So if you do audio books, audible audiobooks, um, I read it. And so if you can put up with this voice for about nine and a half hours, <laughs> it's a good resource for you. <laughs> yeah.
0: You're, you're also in Kindle. Uh, are you in iBooks as well? Yes, of course. Yes. Oh, yeah, because you're a Mac man, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was I was going to talk about fasting being the equivalent of pressing Control Alt Delete uh, on your body, <laughs> but then I realized, well, you're not going to be pressing Control Alt Delete on anything, man. You, you know, so I I skipped that bit. Where where should people start today? I mean, I, I guess a lot of people just struggle with, until they understand the science, once you understand a few basic principles, what to eat is very, very simple on a ketogenic diet, but it's a big transformation. So I think you have um, been involved in a cookbook as well.
2: Yeah, I collaborated, as I mentioned earlier, with Maria Emmerich on the ketogenic cookbook, and it's a great resource for being able to, uh, you know, put into practice what you're teaching. Um, You know, and, and the main thing that we try to teach with uh, teach people that are trying to start this out is, you know, keep it simple. So I made up an acronym in keto clarity for keto K E T O. So K stands for keep carbs low. So low is going to vary from person to person. You need to kind of like tinker and test with it to see where you are. Uh, on on low. For me, it's around 25 to 30 grams of total carbohydrate a day. Other people can maybe eat 50 to 100 grams, but you've got to find what your low means. The E means eat more fat, which we've talked about. Uh, it's now your fuel source. So, eat more fat. The T is test ketones often, which unfortunately there's no audio one, Mm. but maybe like, uh, you know, test it by seeing if you have that taste in your mouth or if you feel more energy, that'll be your test to see if you're in ketosis. And then the O is overdoing protein is bad. And we didn't really hit on this a whole lot, but when you eat more protein than your body wants, it actually gets converted into sugar in the body. So if you're trying to keep sugar low and you're eating a big old chicken breast, thinking that Healthy and low carb. Yes, it's low carb, but it's not ketogenic because you're overloading your body with too much protein. And there's a big long G word: gluconeogenesis. Go read Keto Clarity and you'll see what that's all about.
0: All right. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, and I want to thank you for uh, keeping me on the straight and narrow with this lifestyle. Because now I realize, you know, as I said at the beginning, I don't view this as a diet. It's something that I know I will always keep to because. I've tried, you know, at Christmas sometimes I allow myself a day off and then the next day my head is pounding, I'm feeling awful, (laughs) why did I do this? So I know I'm stuck with this for life and feeling better than I ever have and I really salute you for all of the contribution you've made to this community, You're, you're a rock star and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. A real pleasure to speak with Jimmy. And I do feel like the tide is starting to turn because the evidence is just stacking up so considerably. It's becoming impossible to ignore despite entrenched commercial interests. In Sweden, for example, a few years ago, they have embraced officially at government level the low carb lifestyle, saying that it's the best way to reduce risk of heart disease and diabetes here in New Zealand just a couple of weeks ago. A low-carb advocate has been appointed the New Zealand government's nutrition educational expert. So things are starting to move. Uh, Do the research and best of all, try it for yourself. I think you will find that if you hadn't thought about this option before, this podcast may be the most important thing you've heard this year. I wish you the very best of luck because it certainly has changed my whole life for the better and that's why I wanted to share it with you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mozen Consulting. On the web at mozen.org.